0: Good morning. This is uh, week two of our extensive series on Psalms, Um, three weeks to cover 150 Psalms. Uh, As you know, Joel preached through Psalm 1 last week, I'm going to preach through Psalm 40 today, and then I assume Tim takes the rest next week. Um, Only seemed fitting as the worship pastor would have the lion's share, so... uh, You might want to pack a lunch next Sunday. Um, We're going to go through Psalm 40, but before we do, let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that your word speaks to everything that we need uh, to please you, to survive a life in a fallen world, and that um, your word specifically in Psalm 40 speaks to us. And I would ask right now for help as we go through it, that we would understand it, and that you would be pleased uh, as we go through it, that we'd be changed as a result. In Christ's name, amen. You know, Joel touched on this a little bit last week, or I think he talked about it, and that is that one of the really neat things about Psalms is that it meets us where we live. You know, it's, it's a book that has uh, a lot of, about praise and mountaintop experiences and that kind of thing, but it doesn't just have that. It also has psalms that are about lament and about uh, prayer for deliverance and times where we're not sure what God's doing. And and the psalmist in all these different psalms talks about that. And, And by the way, how many people knew before Joel told us last week that the book generally moves from lament to praise? I did not know that until he said that last week. And that was one of those where after he said it, I felt like that's really something I probably should have known and should have noticed. And I really felt like I'm really not nearly as smart as I thought I was after he said that. But I thought that was really interesting. But anyway, Psalms speaks to us where we live. It, it really talks about life in a fallen world, both the good and the bad. And it's a sign of our gracious God, and really you can say it about the whole Bible, that he didn't just leave us a book that's all about you know, miracles and wondrous and incredible times, but he also left us a book specifically, the Psalms, which is 150. You know, ways to worship God and, and get to know God that talks about that life isn't always great. It is sometimes, but it's not all the time. Psalm 40 that we're gonna go over today is a perfect representative of that because this psalm has both. It's got the big, the great stuff, the good stuff that we're gonna see, and then it also talks about the dark times and the darkness. And interestingly, it does it in sort of an, a unique structure in that the first half of the psalm is all positive and all good, and then the second half of the psalm is pretty dark. As a matter of fact, a lot of commentators think that it was two psalms co- cobbled together. But I think what we're going to find is it's put here for a purpose in order to show us that life is both, and that we have to understand how to take the positive aspects and, 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 and take that into the darkness that we all face. And really, summer, and, and, and to put it all into one summary, it teaches, it's an Old Testament way of teaching us how to walk by faith. That's what it does. So from that standpoint, I love this psalm. And, and the, and the structure is kind of weird because it is. The first half is all positive. There's a transitional verse, and then we go into the darkness. So what we're going to do today, and I would encourage you to keep the psalm open in front of you because we're just going to work our way through it. And the way this is, is the first 10 verses is all the good stuff. Okay, the first three verses tell us how God acts. And then there are three responses by the psalmist, who is David. David wrote the psalm. And David has three responses to God's actions in one to three. But what's kind of neat about it is that each of his responses leads to the next response. So what that means is we see God act in one to three. That leads to a response in four and five which then leads to another response in 6 to 8, which then leads to a third response in 9 and 10. Then we hit 11, which is a transition verse, okay? And then we get into 12 to 17, and that's when things get a little tough. All right? So does that all make sense? So with that in mind, let's start working our way through it, and we'll see this, how this sequential evolution works through the first 10 verses, and then how that feeds us into verses 12 to 17. So the first two verses really are the basis of the psalm. That's what everything else springs from. And what David says is, God delivered me. And what David did, what David's actions is to, to bring about this deliverance was, he had to wait, he had to pray, and he had to pray, and he had to persevere in prayer. Because look what he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. What does waited patiently presuppose? It means that it didn't happen quickly right? And then when it says, and, and God heard my cry, that means that David was crying out for, for God's help, and God's help eventually came, but it certainly didn't come quickly. And when it says that he heard my cry, what does that lead us, what, what does that imply as to how David was, pre- how David was praying? It wasn't just kind of your give the Johnson's travel mercies type of prayer, was it? It was a pleading, oh Lord, please help me. And why was he praying that way? Well, because of what he needed deliverance from. He was in the miry bog in verse 2, and he was in the pit of destruction. We don't know what this was, but it sure doesn't sound good, does it? The metaphors that he uses makes it sound like he was in about as bad a shape as he could possibly be in. And even more than that, he was in a hopeless situation, right? Right? If he's in a miry bog and a pit of destruction, that means he can't get out. He's sinking in the mud in something that has actually become existential and as to whether he's actually going to survive at all. And he cries out and he cries out and he cries out and he perseveres. And eventually God hears that cry and saves him. And then everything else in these first three verses is God. What's God do? God drew him up from the pit of destruction. He set his feet upon the rock. He made his steps secure. So he completely delivered him from whatever it was. But then look at verse 3. This one's pretty interesting. Then he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You know, it's always, you know it's always, we always have to keep something in mind when we ask God to act. And that is God always acts fundamentally first for his glory. It's why he created. It's ultimately why he redeemed. Always God's fundamental motivation in anything he does is his glory. So when he does deliver David, praise has to be part of the equation. But amazingly, not only does he expect David to praise, he puts the song of praise in David's mouth and says, here's what you're supposed to say. And the reason for that then is the end of verse 3. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So that not only is it glorifying God, it's teaching others. Well, four verse 4 and 5 then brings our first response of David to God's deliverance. And his response is praise. And really, 4 and 5 tell us what is the song of praise that God put in David's mouth. And that's where he says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. And when he says that, he says not only is... Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. And by the way, what did we learn blessed meant meant last week? It was happy, right? So blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, but only his trust, only the Lord. Because when it says, who does not turn to the proud and to those who go astray, meaning he doesn't look anywhere else other than the Lord for his trust, just the Lord. And by the way, verse 4 is the key verse of the whole psalm. We'll come back to this, but this summarizes the psalm, okay? By the way, that doesn't mean you can get up and walk out now because you've heard that, but this is the key verse, and we'll come back to later. And then in verse 5, he actually directs his praise to God. And again, this is a man overwhelmed by his deliverance that he has just had because of how big it was that he, what he was delivered out of. And he can say, "'You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. I will praise you, but I can never praise you adequately.'" because of who you are and what you are and what you've done. And notice when he says, you have multiplied, O oh Lord, my God, your, your deeds, but not just your deeds, your thoughts toward us. You ever thought about the fact that God thinks about us? Right? I mean, it's kind of nice when you see somebody and they'll say something, like, hey, you know, I've been thinking about you. Isn't that kind of nice? Unless they follow it up and go, yeah, and all I'm just can't wait to be angry with you or something. But if they just say, you know, I've been thinking about you, and then you put that in terms of the infinite, omniscient, omnipresent God who thinks about you, and his thoughts are innumerable about us. That's an amazing comment. But all of this praise is coming out of the deliverance that David experienced because the deliverance was so incredible, he now turns back and praises God. So that's the first response. The second response is six to eight. And that's obedience. And his pray the deliverance, leads to praise, which then leads to obedience. And and interestingly, in verse 6, he starts out by talking about what worship and praise and obedience isn't. Because he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. You have given me an open ear. By the way, nobody knows what that second phrase means. When it says, you have given me an open ear, I guess the Hebrew is something like, you have dug in the ear or something. So the common, nobody really knows what that means. So we're going to just pass right over that so you don't understand, so you don't realize that I don't know what it means, all right? (laughs) Then it says, burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Well, you know what's interesting? When he says sacrifice and offering you have not desired, burn offering, sin offering you have not required, what do we know about the Mosaic law under which David lives? God does require this. But what David's saying is you never want empty ritual. You never want worship and praise for the sake of worship and praise. You want it to be sincere. If you read through the minor prophets, you hear God say this repeatedly, especially in the book of Amos. He actually says to the Israelites, I wish wish you would shut the doors of the temple because, frankly, your worship makes me sick. Why? Because they were coming into the temple, they were offering sacrifices, but then the other six days of the week... They were committing adultery. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were cheating each other. They were, in some cases, even shedding innocent blood. And God says, your worship makes me sick, which means that there's no such thing as bad, or or bad worship isn't better than no worship. No worship is better than bad worship. So in this case, that's what David is saying. And the reason he says it is because it then leads directly into how do we know that worship is sincere? The way we know is because of obedience. And that's when he goes on and says, I I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me or prescribed for me. And then he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You are the God who he just said is your wondrous deeds and your thoughts, and none can compare with you. That God who that's true of and who delivered me is worthy of my obedience. And, and it's worthy to the point where I delight in obeying you. Does that make sense? So the deliverance comes first. Out of that comes the praise. The praise then leads to obedience because God is worthy of my obedience and I delight to do your will. Don't miss, by the way, the last phrase of, um, of verse 8. He says, your law is within my heart. You know, you can't obey what you don't know. And what David is saying is, I have not only desired to obey you, I have spent the time understanding your law so that I can obey you. There's a lesson here for us, right? You can't obey what you don't know. If you don't know this, you can't obey it. And so part of the offering back to God for his deliverance, what David is saying is, I have spent the time learning your law. So if we are going to take David's example and be able to do these same responses that he's talking about, we need to know this. We need to invest the time in it so that we know it. Well, that's the second response. So we've had deliverance, first response, praise, which led to the second response, obedience, which leads to the third response, which is testimony. And that's in verses 9 and 10. And and note the tone of these verses. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation, Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. He essentially repeats himself about three times. All of it saying, I have talked about what you've done. I have proclaimed what you've done. Why? Because he's overwhelmed by it. He can't not proclaim it. He is so overwhelmed by what God's done, by who God is, that he proclaims it to anyone and everyone. And he says, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, I couldn't not proclaim that. And there's a lesson here for us there, isn't it? Because why is David doing this? David's not doing this grudgingly. David's not doing this because he feels like, I I have to. No, David's doing it because he can't contain himself. He's doing it because he's overwhelmed by what God's done. And what's true of David is true of all of us, by the way. And that is, we talk about what excites us. We talk about what we get excited about. Several years ago, my wife, who's kind of into food and nutrition, not into food, we're all into food, but you know what I mean, (laughs) kind of into eating right and those kind of things, read a book, and it really resonated with her. I mean, really resonated with her. And I mean, she became like an apostle for this book. Started telling everybody about it. We'd get together with dinner. We're talking about the book. We're getting together with a friend. She's talking about the book. Got to the point where I'm pretty sure people stopped calling us <laughs> because they didn't want to hear about the book, right? And I remember thinking at the time, man, as excited as she is about that book, this book is a whole heck of a lot more meaningful, and I don't think I'm nearly as excited about this one as she is about that one. Because at the end of the day, we talk about what we're excited about. If you're like me and you would and be embarrassed if people knew how much or how little you witness, well, then maybe what the answer is isn't, oh, jeez, I got a witness. Oh, my gosh, I got a witness. I should do this better and put yourself on a massive guilt trip. No, the answer is to become more overwhelmed with what God's done for you. Get to the point where it bubbles out and over you because you can't help it because that's who you are. We talk about what we're excited about. If you're sitting here today and you are parents of young kids, my guess is you don't have to gear up to work into the conversation the latest cute thing that little Jimmy did, right? As a matter of fact, if anything, if you're self-aware, you've got to tell yourself, I got to stop talking about the kids so much, right? (laughs) And same thing with anything else. You just saw a great movie, just just got a great deal on something at the store, just read a great book, bought a new house, whatever it is, we naturally talk about what we're excited about. And so if you want to be a witness, become overwhelmed by what the gospel means. Spend so much time with it that it just becomes who you are, and it's just part of your conversation, and then you start to talk about it to others. And believe me, I am preaching to myself every bit as much as I am to you. I don't mean to just say you. I mean we. So that's the third, that's the third um, response. So now, so we've had three responses. We've had the delivery, right, the deliverance. Leads to the first response of praise, which leads to the second response of obedience, which leads to the third response of testimony, and then that flows direct, And then, and then now we reach a transition. We've kind of reached halftime, and now we get to verse eleven. And verse eleven transition us from the happy times to now what could be sort of the the greater times. Oh, and by the way, too, the if something I, that I just thought about that I missed, notice that when in the second response of obedience. That obedience never comes before deliverance. Right? That when he, the second response of obedience always is a response to God's actions. It's what separates Christianity from religion. Religion says I obey and work myself to work my way to God. Christianity says God saves me and in response I obey. So that's so from the standpoint the psalm is accurate into how it shows that. Deliverance comes first, then praise, then obedience, then testimony. Right? So, okay, so now we reach verse 11. And he says this, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Now, this is a prayer that is born out of the first 10 verses. Now, notice something. What is the verb tense in the first 10 verses? It's past, isn't it? Everything's past tense in the first 10 verses. But notice verse 11. What's the verb tense in 11? It's present. And he's transitioning from here is how things have been. Now let me tell you how things are. And verse 11 becomes not just a prayer, but a statement of faith born out of his experience of the first 10 verses. Right? And so he is saying then that I know that you will do this. Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness, which you already praised God for earlier, will ever preserve me. So he's saying, I have the confidence to say that because of what you've already done. But why is he saying it now? And why is he praying this back to God and saying, I know this is true? Well, the reason is because he's in trouble. And he is right back into the miry bog and the pit of destruction. And notice again, we are all present tense from here on. In verse 12 from 17, he lays out an entirely different perspective of what's going on with his life. And the psalm totally changes tone. There's a sea change in the tone of it. And notice what he says. He says, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. And when he says, I cannot see, he means I'm losing perspective. I'm I'm starting to lose just the proper perspective on my life as a whole. He says, they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. He's losing perspective and he's losing hope, both. You know, 12 is a gigantically encouraging verse. And you might go, it doesn't really seem that way, Rob, honestly. But it is it is hugely encouraging. You know why? Because that first phrase he says, evils have encompassed me beyond number. That sounds like he's a victim, right? And that's true. We live in a fallen world and there are some times where we fall into pits that are just there because we live in a fallen world. We're walking along, everything seems fine, bam, we're in a pit. Nothing we did. That's just the way the world is. You know what? Look at the next phrase. My iniquities have overtaken me. Some pits, we pull out a shovel and dig ourselves and then jump down in them, right? I mean, if you're like me, that's true sometimes. My iniquities have overtaken me, and they're more than the hairs of my head. But here's what's great. Here's what's awesome about this. God delivers us from both. David put this in here, and if he hadn't put it in here, then I mean and the, the the fact that he has it here means that God delivers us from both. That doesn't mean that he always takes away the ramifications of our sin. He doesn't. Matter of fact, oftentimes doesn't. But it does mean that he doesn't just sit up there and go, hey, I'll help you with the pitch you didn't dig, but the pitch you did dig, that's your that's on you, big fella. No. God is willing to come alongside of us and even the ones we dig and throw ourselves into. I love the fact that David says my iniquities are part of the issue of why my life is so hard right now. Don't you love that? I mean, if you're like me, that is fantastic to see that in maybe a morbid way, right? Then he goes on and says it's not just, it's not just evils that surround me and it's not just my iniquities that have done all these things, but other people are against me, right? They seek to snatch away my life in verse 14 right? Uh, they desire my hurt, also in 14. In 15, they say to me, aha, aha. All that means is they accuse him. So he has people against him, people accusing him. Evils are surrounding him on every side. His own iniquities are about to overwhelm him. What's the picture we're getting here? The picture we're getting here is it's all dark. And right, and, and though he was delivered from the miry bog and delivered from the... Uh, pit of destruction he's right back in it and it's every bit as hopeless right so the reason that he made the statement that he did in verse 11 that prayer is because he is in desperate need all over again of God's help and and again notice it is in the present tense this is where he is verses 1 to 10 is where he was he does keep praying during this time though Because he says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. You know, I I never really know what to do with imprecatory psalms. I'm never exactly sure how that's supposed to apply to my life. I'm just throwing this in for free. Um, And since I still don't know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that part. All right? But then he says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. So he continues to pray through it, but the the prayers are during a time of incredible darkness. There is nothing good about where he is. But look at what else he prays twice. And I think this this is the second gigantically encouraging thing here. Look what he prays twice. Look at the second phrase of verse 13. O oh Lord, make haste to help me. And then look at the last phrase of verse 17. Do not delay, O oh my God. Now, I want to remind you of something. What was the very first phrase of this psalm? How did he start it? I waited patiently for the Lord. And yet, what is he praying here? O oh Lord, come quickly. Oh, Lord, get me out of this soon. He's a human. This is awesome because this means we get to pray this way. And so we, pray, we should pray with David because David's essentially saying this. Look, look, I've waited before. I can wait again. I have the faith to wait on your timing. But i got to be honest, I wish your timing was now. And that means we can pray that way too. We can pray, Lord, we know that everything is in your perfect time. We know that you are not bound by space and time, that you don't wear our watch, and that you look at things differently and you have the advantage point of eternity, but please, oh, please get me out of this soon. And apparently, that's okay. I think that's fantastic. I waited patiently for the Lord. Please don't make me do it again. (laughs) That's what he's saying. I think that's hugely encouraging. Well, now, okay, so now that's the end of the psalm. All right, we've, we've looked through the pieces, okay? We've dissected it, we understand it, how the first 10 verses go into the second, or maybe not totally understand all that, but we've, we've broken it down into its parts, and we got all that. But now what do we do with it? It seems like we got two separate parts with a little joiner in the middle, and it's like, so what, what do we take away from it that we can walk out of here and apply to our lives? Well, to me, what I think makes sense, and I don't think I'm too far afield on this, is I think we can look at this as an Old Testament instruction on doing what Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, a very famous verse, Paul says, to, says this to us and to his uh, readers. You are to walk by faith, not by sight. Right? Well, I think David has just given us the exact same message. I think you can look at verses 1 to 10, and you can say that's an example of walking by faith. He's been delivered. He's overwhelmed by that deliverance. He he responds to that deliverance in uh, obedience and in praise and in testimony. That's walking by faith. But then verses 12 to 17 are an example of sight. Not necessarily walking by sight, just sight. Because what does he see when he looks around? All he sees is darkness. There is nothing right now as he looks around at his life that screams out, God is for you, God's on your side, God's here, a benevolent, loving God is with you. Nothing. All he sees is darkness, right? And so that's what sight is. And what David is telling us is, you got to take 1 to 10 with you into the darkness of 12 to 17. You have to take what you know to be true of God based on his deliverance of you in the past and how you respond to that, and you need to keep responding to that even in the times of darkness where it looks like there's nothing good happening at all. Because otherwise, when you walk by sight, and he does touch on this a little bit, you end up with what he said in verse 12 where he said, I cannot see and my heart fails me. That's the result of walking by sight. You lose perspective. You lose hope. See, ultimately, what walking by faith and not by sight means is you have to walk based on what you know. We are to be thinkers as Christians. Several years ago, I, I decided to buy my kids. I have three kids. I bought them all bracelets. And by the way, it's not as wimpy as it sounds. But it, it was these bracelets. That you get them online, and they're like wood, and then you get words stamped on them. I don't remember what they're called. But um, anyway... I got ones that said think on them because I thought, as Christians, that's what you need to do. You need to think. By the way, total fail, they never wore them, okay? (laughs) But my heart was in the right place, I think, anyway. Um, But as Christians, we have to think because we have to walk based on what we know to be true, and that's what David is saying here. And then when we get into the times, when we, because there are times of life where what does sight tell us? Sight tells us God's not around. Or if he is, he's not for you. Or if he is for you, he apparently is too powerless to change anything. He's either not benevolent, not powerful enough, or not even here. And there are times in life where when you look around, that's what your experience tells you. And that's where David says, no, 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 no. Because my God delivered me. And I know that if my God delivered me, then He is, and He's worthy of all these praises, then that's the God I hold on to, even when there is nothing in my experience which tells me that. And see, it all David's faith is all based on what happened in verses 1 and 2. God delivered him. Let me ask you a question. What is our version of Psalm 41 and 2? What's God delivered us from? Our miry bog. And pit of destruction is eternal separation from God. We're redeemed, right? God redeemed us. God took our penalty for sin such that we can walk in to the throne room of God with our head held high because we deserve to be there. We are justified to be there. We are in there with justification because our penalty has been paid. We walk into the righteousness of God, all the penalty for my sin. I walk into the throne because I'm supposed to be here. It would be unjust if I weren't here. But even more than that, when I look at the judge of all the earth, I don't have to call him judge anymore. I call him father because I've been adopted into his family. Right? So more than just justified, I have been adopted. And I look at all those things together and it's like, that's the God I serve. He redeemed me. And so then when I look around and my experience and my sight says, there is nothing here that shows that God is with me or is in charge of the earth or that there is anything in my experience that proves it, I still go back and go, well, wait a minute. My God redeemed me. And just like David, I go back to that deliverance and I go, if that's true, then I know that there's purpose behind what I am in and he is with me even though my sight tells me he's not. That's walking by faith and not by sight. Which then brings us back to verse 4. Because verse 4 sums that up exactly. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That's what it means to walk by faith. And when you walk by faith, you believe that and you say, yes, I make the Lord my trust even when there is nothing in my experience that would back up the truth that the man is blessed who makes the Lord his trust. That's the takeaway. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we take one in ten with us into the darkness of 12 to 17. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for... Just how, how amazing is it that an Old Testament passage written thousands of years ago has the power of your spirit behind it and it speaks so well to us. Thank you for the, um, just your, your grace that's expressed in your word. And thank you that you love us so much that you leave this for us. You are a great and awesome and wonderful God who is incomparable and worthy to be praised, and I would ask that you would help us to live in light of our redemption such that when we are in the darkness of 12 to 17, that we can hold on to that and know that you are there even if it doesn't seem you are. Thank you that you love us so much. In Christ's name, amen.